This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Nina has symptoms consistent with coronavirus, but she's still here. So we're going to do the Nina Has Coronavirus episode, and we're going to do it on Blow Up, a film from the 60s. Helen, kick us off. So, yeah, I, I really like this film. I haven't seen it for years, but uh, I am very fascinated by this epoch in many ways. And um, I forgot to press record on my side. I'm such a retard. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'll just I'll, I'll continue on. I'll, get, um, I'll just say to Adam to, sorry. Right, I'll start again. Yes, I like this film a lot. I haven't seen it for many years. I think this film is about object A as it relates to desire. Um, I'm really fascinated by films from this epoch and generally culture from this epoch. This is 66, I think it came out, and I kind of think that 67 is a real sort of turning point year. Obviously, 68 comes up in terms of um, emerging into, you know, what will later become neoliberalism, uh, sort of politically speaking. Uh, and... I I think maybe people won't agree with me, but this film sort of does point to the fallacy of hippies at the end of the film and uh, the conservatism of hippiedom. Um, and of course, I don't know if you guys enjoyed uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I think in a way was a sort of um, exploration of history had the hippies not succeeded, had not taken cultural hegemony. Um, in the late 60s, what would what would the world have been like? <laughs> um, would we have got the neoliberal order that we have that we have now? So um, ob quite obviously, I mean, this film echoes the kind of Lacanian idea that um, desire forms out of nothing, um, that object A is a no thing, that which inspires desire. It's a film about a photographer in London who has sort of almost stardom as a photographer um, and there are all sorts of women who want to be photograph photographed by him. He even says, you know, women will pay me to photograph them. And in terms of, you know, the hysterics mode of desire, um, there is for a lot of people, the desire is to be desired. So the model desire, you know, is, is inspire, is, is sort of instigating object A or is object A is inspiring the desire of those who see the picture either as an advert or, or just as an image. Um, it's interesting you have this sort of, um, you know, that kind of feminism that's uh, very moralizing and you can't enjoy anything type feminism. And I actually had a critique from someone like this of one of my projects, which was about a woman being un semi unclothed while the man was slightly less semi unclothed. And the reason for that was because um, of just like the fact that it takes longer to unclothe a man who has a button up shirt and some one woman wearing a dress. So, you know, that's really why it happened. You know, there's all these sort of things like the filmmaker meant this, they meant that. And it's like, usually to do with how much budget you have, really, um, but and how much time is running out. But the, the point was that you get this sort of um, critique that's as if uh, women being objectified is always, by definition, something quote-unquote patriarchal. But we have to, um, just as we don't kink shame, just as we don't um, judge people, you know, historically for being, you know, homosexual or something, some... Uh, wrong way of desire. There is no wrong desire. All desire is wrong, essentially. Um, but there is a canonical form of desire, which is to desire to be desired. So essentially, this sort of, you know, this woman who and this character in this film that I made was was enjoying their um, being um, that which inspires desire. And many people 
uh, do enjoy that. So that is really this um, desire to be desired, desire to be objective. But at the, this early part of the film where there are lots of models throwing themselves over <laughs> the photographer. Um, and again, you know, this sort of uh, castigatory analysis, quote, academic analysis, which I don't think is academic analysis at all, but rather market oppositional um, enemy making logic, um, disciplinary logic that does not understand the full depths and dimensions of human subjectivity that um, because in order to do that would be to have a proper critique of the market, not uh, university discourse type critique that is a non-critique that just sustains the same um, merry-go-round. But during this early part of the film, the photographer is kind of quite bored. You know, he's very uh, unbothered and he's quite a cool guy. But at a certain point when he's, um, aside from his sort of uh, modeling pictures and fashion pictures, he likes taking pictures of, of, of London. So at the beginning, he's, um, I think you call it a DOS house he's sleeping in taking photos of um, people, men living in sort of squalid conditions, but he goes to a park to photograph um, various things and he sees a pair of lovers and in, in, in taking a photograph. He, something is in a photograph. The woman um, whom he photographs wants the film back because, which tells him that there is something that is hidden in this photograph. She wants it back so desperately, desperately she wants other people not to see what's there. So that inspires his desire. That not knowing inspires his desire to go on this sort of almost quest to discover what's in the photograph. And he sees when he blows up the image, a very blur, blurry, dotted sort of figure that's that's a corpse. So a murder has taken place. And he his desire is inspired by the not knowing, by this grainy nothingness. Even when it's blown up on screen, we really can't really see what's, what's in it. And this is really, you know, what drives desire. Desire emerges from a nothingness. I think we did an episode on Almodovar and I talked about the fact that we are all queer, quote unquote. I think Queerness has um, at least two meaning, meanings. Its philosophical meaning would be in terms of how desire emerges out of our broken subjectivity. And in that sense, we are all um, queer. But then in that sort of more woke sense where you're trying to set up one group, which was um, unfortunately terribly uh, rejected by a more conservative society, um, an oppositional type reactive um, analysis in reaction to that, instead of not understanding that to get beyond the conservative scapegoating is not to create a new form of conservative scapegoating with the clothes of something apparently emancipatory, but to get to a point of understanding that we are all broken, divided, and that's how we desire. Because in doing that, we can get a, well, in doing that, we get a material understanding of the of subjectivity of the unconscious and how we live in the investment market system itself. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot, I think, but René Girard has a parable and it goes like this. A man sets out to discover a treasure he believes is hidden under a stone. He turns, turns over stone after stone, but finds nothing. He grows so tired of such a futile undertaking, but the treasure is too precious for him to give up. So he begins to look for a stone which is too heavy to lift. He places all his hopes in that stone and he will waste all his remaining strength on it. So really that's drive, essentially. This constant missing is that which inspires desire. Desire, just as language, um, is born of our birth into language. And that birth into language happens through a terrible, horrific break, a separation. Um, and we always feel when we are, we have been born too early, part of the mother until a certain point in time, 
we are rested from the mother's breast and we always feel that we are going to return to that. And we get these sort of replacement objects and these replacement objects we can libidinally invest in. And this libidinal investment can be toxic and it can um, thrust us towards melancholia or depression endlessly, but there is no beyond desire. Desire is really what makes life living. We are a cluster of cells clinging to a rock flung through the universe and really do we want to get rid of desire? No, we don't. I think we'd be <laughs> like really, really um, couldn't face at all the reality of our existence. Um, so the there's a sort of form of resolution at the end of the film, the photographer wandering around London, trying to um, resolve this unresolvable case that he'll never discover. And he sort of comes to the end of this desire by folding it into this game um, that is played by a bunch of sort of what do you call it, like yuppie, hipstery sort of, I don't know, people being mimes, having a, I don't know, it seems to be, it seems to be like quite a kind of like hippie kind of thing because it's the 60s. And they, they're they playing this sort of innocent game. He comes across them in the park. They're playing tennis without a ball. And in a way, you know, we're looking at something, maybe this film is showing us that this is the reality of desire. There is no ball. You know, there is no thing. And yet we play this game. We engage in society around these objects that don't exist. So maybe there's a truth to that. But I think the hippies game is wrong because the game, okay, let's say the game is capitalism, right? We're all, we're all playing the same game. In society, we have to get on. We have to interact with each other. There's no getting beyond that. We have to have you know, um, political engagement with one another. We have to create societies. We can't get beyond the other. And that's an antagonism with the fact that we will have our own desires, these contingent desires that we can't really give up on because life wouldn't be worth living. And, you know, if we repress our desires, there's always a toxic return of the repressed. So, so what do we do? You know, the quote unquote solution, which is a terrible toxic solution with a, a huge, obvious amount of repression is um, in the market system. We give up our own desire for the desire of the big other, some other that tells us, look, everyone's playing this game, you know, to the extent that there is no ball in this tennis game called capitalism, but we still believe that there is. We believe that, you know, we all within the symbolic order agree on the rules of the game and there's some, some fake tennis ball we're, we're passing to one another. We do have to play a game, but a, the game shouldn't really be some silly illusion. It should be unveiled, like the reality of our desire. We should play a game only in the sense that we are um, engaging one, with one another within reality. You know, and, and, and philosophy can help us get to this point beyond the trauma of desire to, to acknowledge our revolving around desire that we're never going to get desire and we are each endowed with our own desire that can, you know, map onto different things. The neurotic's very able to, to map their desire onto other things. But I think that the um, this illusion that we can give up, you know, on our own desire utterly and replace it with just a stupid fake ball that the big other tells us is a ball when it isn't, um, is not a solution either. I mean, I guess there's no solution really. But I guess the point being that the hippies are the ones playing this game. <laughs> you know, the hippies are the... Uh, are more conservative than the conservatives. They're more protective of the market system, the lie of the market system than the conservatives. And the hippies really led us into um, 20th, the 21st century um, tech uh, utopia, i.e. hell, um, that we exist in. 
so those are just some thoughts. All right, Nina, you're up. Right. Well, as as Benjamin announced, I'm <laughs> officially uh, rid- riddled with uh, the the great uh, disease of our era, and now I finally feel like I am playing a part uh, in reality. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so so I I'm in this slightly dreamlike state of uh, slight fever and and slightly high temperature. Uh, it's not it's not too awful. I think I have the milder version, but it's it's an interesting mood to be in to watch this film <laughs> and to think about cinema in general uh and indeed like i think when when one is ill and one is in a way forced to cancel things and to obey certain instructions uh whether one accepts them coming from the state or simply from one's own uh sense of self um it's quite it's quite interesting to sort of be forced to be ill it's something quite almost enjoyable about being ill sometimes in a strange way if it's not too painful and not too um not putting other people out too much um or at least it it creates a potentially slightly different refractive state or a reflective state of being and um so yeah so I, I really enjoyed watching this film I I I had seen it before but I think in some state which I didn't really recall it and I think when I was watching it before I was with someone who is very much obsessed with the idea of the architecture and the places that are in the film, which are very interesting. It's a very, very uh, beautiful film about London. It's a very, uh, you know, if you, if you know anything about London, it's quite, um, quite extraordinary to focus on the places and the way in which Antonioni sees uh, London. And it reminded me in that sense of sometimes uh, people who don't live in the country or don't come from the country often have a much better or a, a much stranger vision of um, what is otherwise normality to people who live there. So, for example, Children of Men would be another example of a vision of Britain seen from the outside. Um, so I think, yeah, and it, this film reminded me of, of other films that deal with various forms of unreality and altered states and the relationship between appearance and reality. And uh, I was recently reading something that just, that um, discussed blow up in relation to the question of Gnosticism and whether this was a Gnostic film. <laughs> um, I think it partly uh, you can you can see it that way in terms of uh, the absolute um, st- uh, utterly distantiated forms. It's a very very cold and strange film in many ways. It's it's absolutely. Um, disconnected in certain senses, even where there are scenes of kind of hedonism and, and sexuality, like the, rom- the romping around the studio, the kind of um, sex with the two, two girls who visit, um, which is a kind of playful, you know, almost kind of um, aggressive scene, like very, you know, complicated scene. It reminds me of, of um, scenes in If, um, but some of the language and the way people speak is also very much like Manchurian Candidate, which is also a film that deals with uh, certain forms of um, hallucination, distantiation, and, and ideology, and I I really particularly like the scene in this film where the one of the models who's playing herself, who's a very big model at the time, um, she's supposed to be in Paris, and she and he says, "I thought you were in Paris," and she says, while standing in a London flat where everyone is drunk and high, "I am in Paris," and and these kinds of odd uh, assertions of 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 reality. Um, 
Also, I think the use of sound is extraordinary in this film. And I wanted to talk about the it's it's largely non-diegetic, except for, I think, the final scene, which is when he's standing away from the tennis court in the scene that Helen has described in great detail with the mimes who are pretending to play tennis um, <laughs> in a half annoying, half theatrical way. Um, in the very final scene, you can hear the sound of the tennis ball, even though there isn't one there being hit back and forth. And so you get this absolute um, split or cut between sound and image in this film, which is a very Godardian technique, or he does it in a slightly different way. Um, but there's something very uh, profound about cinema, <laughs> I think, being being said in this film. Um, not least because it's also a film about photography. It's a, it's a film about other media, um, which is something that cinema does extraordinarily well, whether it's doing the scene with the band. Uh, we have the, the, I think it's the Yardbirds playing and um, and the audience is just stock still in a very strange way, or the vast majority of the audience is. So people are not responding in the way that you would necessarily think that they, <coughs> they would. Excuse my coughing. Um, thank God we're on Zoom. Um, <laughs> is all I can say. Um, but uh, well, for your sake, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm I'm kind of interested in this this period of the the 1960s um, in all of these forms of disconnection and and the way in which certain kinds of reality and ideology are being kind of played out um, as as hypotheses. Whether it is the kind of the the free love um, idea, the kind of or the purely imagistic or the um, the the sort of theatrical um, and and in a way. What what is going on like in in the kind of gaps between everyone and all of these places and all of these different groups? So even when he's walking around the street, he encounters a protest. There's a group of um, men from Africa at one point who cross the scene. There's these kind of absolutely strange little encapsulations of micro worlds that kind of cross each other um, and sometimes um, sort of encounter, but only sort of briefly. Um, and also the antique shop. <coughs> Um, and the the park itself becomes this hallucinatory experience. Um, and the the grass was apparently spray painted green because it wasn't green enough for the director. So they they hyper greenified the park, which I find quite um, extraordinary. And the fact that there isn't any solution, really, that that no matter how close you get to the the quote unquote reality, um, there is no um answer the number the woman leaves the Vanessa Redgrave character is is a is a fake number um he sees the corpse and then it's gone um the photograph tells you something but not enough um and it, it's left in this very 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 ambivalent um um state of a kind of dreamlike um unreality um you know and all of his relations are absolutely unclear like is he in a relationship with this woman who's also having sex with someone else or is he just sort of randomly you know, doing what he likes with with models. Um, <coughs> anyway, that's largely incoherent because I can't really think properly, but uh, I'll leave it there. All right, my turn. Blow up includes a murder, but the murder is not the point. The murder is a device to get a larger audience to see this film. The film is really about how terribly boring and uncool the 60s London art scene was. The film follows Thomas, a photographer who is a colossal prick to everybody he meets. 
He gets up and leaves meetings with no explanation. He uses his car like a ram to push through pedestrians. He's cruel to his underlings. It's not obvious the man has any positive qualities at all. Thomas spends most of the film doing very little. He takes pictures, fools around with his models, smokes, goes to a rock concert. He's literally got a life dominated by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I've never seen a film succeed so totally in making these things look lame. The film stays with these scenes just long enough for them to bore you. Thomas takes pictures of the models for just a touch too long. He smokes for too long. He's at the rock concert for too long. By keeping him in these situations for a slightly uncomfortable length of time, our attention is drawn to the fact that none of this matters, none of it is cool, and these activities are primarily a way for boring people to waste time. Just before you get to the point where you want to shut the film off for boring you to death, it moves on. <laughs> Thomas goes and gets involved in something else boring, and again, it takes a while for the viewer to realize just how dull that new activity is. Thomas buys a propeller because he's bored. He goes to a concert because he's bored. At the concert, one of the musicians smashes his guitar and throws a piece of it into the audience. The fans didn't care much about the concert until there was a piece of garbage to fight over. That got them excited. Thomas struggles to wrest this bit of rubbish from the throng of fans. Once Thomas manages to seize this trash, he absconds with it until he finds himself out in the street. In public, nobody knows that this piece of rubbish used to belong to the guitar of a famous rock star. Thomas only cared about it because other people cared about it. When he realizes it doesn't matter, he discards it. Somebody picks it up and then throws it away again. The murder's main purpose in the film is to briefly give Thomas something to care about. But care is a strong word for Thomas's reaction. He doesn't even discover the murder until the film is about two thirds through. And by the end of the film, he's back to his old distractions, playing virtual tennis with mimes in the park. Was the murder real? Was the tennis real? The answers to these questions don't really matter. What matters is that the 60s London art scene was morally and spiritually desolate. And yet it was the British artists of this era who invaded America and took center stage in our popular culture. They appeared cool at first, but if you stayed with them long enough, you discover they were boring. The film is built to give you that experience. The chatter about the murder is just a way to get you to start watching and to get you to finish a film which is otherwise designed to bore you. Maybe if you're bored watching these people indulge in trivial crap, you'll think twice before you waste your life the same way. For all their vaunted talk about individuality and rebellion, in Blow Up, the 60s kids are exposed as a bunch of homogenous groups all boringly pursuing the same trivial distractions. You've got a group of people boringly pretending to play tennis, a group of people boringly doing drugs at a party, a group of people boringly listening to a rock concert, a group of models boringly standing before a camera. The photographer is bored looking at them, and we are bored looking at him. Are we any less boring than he is? Can we do any better? The film challenges us to have more meaningful lives than the characters it depicts. That makes it a good film, even if it's pretty boring. It's interesting um, because, yes, the 60s counterculture. Obviously, counter is a certain word. It is maybe counter to something, but is the counter all it is? The sort of pose, you know, the ironic pose. So you're talking about the um, 
the kerfuffle around the broken guitar, which again, the, the guy breaks because there's a very slight fizz in the which in the speaker. And he goes a bit, starts whacking the speaker with his guitar, which seems like a bit of an extreme reaction. And then everybody piles onto the thing. And it's almost because it's pointless. It's this sort of, I think you've talked about like the Zoom or the TikTok culture being a bit ironic. Maybe Nina, you've talked about this quite a lot about the sort of um, like the in joke of it being meaningless. And that's the sort of pose that you are above meaning, beyond meaning, beyond sincerity um, by just being random. But I have to say, it's interesting. I think next week, by the way, this, Maybe we should, well, we'll see where this conversation goes, but I've always wanted to do an episode on Mad Men. And there's an episode um, of Mad Men. I think Mad Men's great in terms of depicting the 60s in an interesting way, in an honest way, um, non-nostalgic, but also slightly nostalgic. But there's an episode about nostalgia. So maybe we should we should talk about that. But maybe we're going to talk about this today with this, because as you say, yes, there is a sort of, um, well, there is a thing with, with artists, you know, with this sort of, um, transferential relationship of um, the public with fame, of youth culture with fame, um, that fame has some kind of, or people who are famous artists have some kind of magical truth or um, are connected to some kind of um, sense of the world that is superior than the rest of us, quote unquote. But as you maybe point out, yes, the 60s counterculture that came to America um, well, I guess it wasn't quite counterculture as such. You know, we talking about the Beatles and stuff. You know, what what exists there? What is the there there? I yeah. I mean, I I don't I don't know if I, I want to go all the way down into Benjamin's moral moralistic <laughs> reading <laughs> of the film, um, but I'm happy to have heard it. Um, I I mean, I I do take your point, but I mean, a film about distance and kind of meaninglessness uh, <laughs> is not necessarily so straightforwardly I think a warning against those things I think there is something of a kind of you know the cold clinical eye you know which is also the eye of the photographer in a certain sense you know there's one point where the the the, the lead guy I mean he's kind of based on these like David Bailey you know 60s photographer type guys right you know sort of working class guys who end up being the fashion photographers and then you know, he says something like, well, you look at a beautiful woman and then you see her beauty and for, for a while and that's it. It's like he knows in a way that it's a kind of superficial, you know, enterprise and, and everything is about the props and the kind of, you know, the screens and all of the kind of backgrounds and all of which are kind of interchangeable or even irrelevant in the sense that when he when the two young, playful women turn up and they just rip down his set and he doesn't care, you know, it's just the kind of backdrop for his... Uh, for for them playing around, um, and I, yeah, I, I I I don't know. I mean, I wonder. It's a, it's about kind of altered states as well. I mean, I get the point about him being distracted, right? Like, so he he obviously he he's in a permanent state of a minor hedonism or a, or another, whether he's driving his car or drinking wine or listening to Herbie Hancock or um, being distracted at the party or ordering food that he doesn't eat or. You know, there's a kind of permanent state of um, unsustained activity, um, even though he's obviously, you know, dedicated photographer and whatnot. Um, but whether whether this is an indictment or an observation, you know, whether whether there's something kind of coming down the pipeline in this kind of culture, which is not just the counterculture either, 
I think it's it's a kind of maybe an early film about a certain kind of groundlessness that is coming for everybody, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's kind of, as a lot of post-war stuff is, it's a, a critique of a kind of dystopian situation where it's difficult to establish any sense of meaning because we've all been put into various roles where there is nothing meaningful that comes out of those roles. Uh, And we're invited to paper over that with hedonistic distractions. And each hedonistic distraction is only plausible for so long until you get bored of it, and then you have to find another one. You can only do, do each one for a little while, and then you go, ah, this is boring too. And you go on to the next one. I see him as just kind of cycling through these different things. And he, I think he photographs those models for money insofar as he cares about anything. It's those pictures he takes of the poor, miserable guys that he puts into mm-hmm. the album. But he's, he doesn't even seem to care enough about that to sit through the meeting with the guy that he's apparently putting together the album with. You know, midway through the meeting, he gets up because he saw somebody. Yeah, he because he thinks he saw the guy from the park, maybe. Yeah. Or something to do with that. So he doesn't actually care about what he's making more than what he thinks maybe he saw in the park. But what about Helen's point about desire? You know, like the, in a way, not giving up on desire, like even if it be- becomes diffuse. Because I, I think this kind of this uh, bi- reactive binary, because, you know, we talk about it's funny, like the pale male and stale or whatever. So, you know, people my age went to the workforce, my gosh, these crusty old men. Da, 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 da. Well, these crusty old men come from a culture that was already quite um, tolerant of a, of a good deal of, of hedonism and, and liberalism or whatever. And, you know, British culture, which has a sort of, um, you know, at its worst, is highly repressive or whatever. But there's always this release valve to be. Um, within the society, you know, we're in this very nice areas of London. The guy drives a Rolls Royce, but you know, he's 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 sort of a, 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 these people would be, you know, upper middle class people. It's very much tolerated to to be um, countercultural in a way. And it's the film opens. You know, you can't really tell if he's he looks like a sort of um, homeless guy at the beginning, you know, <laughs> and then you discover oh, he's got a Rolls Royce. And it, at first, I was like. I couldn't. I had. I had seen the film like fifteen years ago. I was like, does he steal the Rolls Royce? Was that his? But it is actually his. You know. So, so, um, yeah. They, they, they're. All, it's already allowed for this sort of like nihilistic, whatever within this system. But it's all not. It is, in a way. I guess the difference in terms of going after your desire. You know, if you if you have a system where, as you say, you have these roles, you you don't get to choose what you do, um, and there's no acknowledgement of that. You know, in many ways, we. We don't have choice because we live with other people. But like when we have a, a completely repressive, say, capitalist system, and then all there is in response to that within the system is, well, you have to do this, but you also get to sort of in a posely way reject it. But you're still not honestly going after your desire and you're not permitted to honestly go after your desire. Well, one of the few positive interactions he has in this film is when he encounters the anti-war demonstrators and one of them puts a sign into the back of his car. And he doesn't seem at all bothered by that. Eventually, the sign blows out of the back of his car. But he doesn't seem to be very concerned with that car because he just shoves a propeller in there and he lets people touch it and and mess about with it. But I, I think that there is an indication there that there really isn't an opposition between the people 
in the 60s who have money and power and influence and the people in the 60s who are just kind of out rummaging about. And the student movement was very much uh, allied to forces within liberal and left-wing parties which wanted to displace workers in favor of a more cultured strata of people who would be more receptive to progressive ideas. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, so yeah, 68 is very much, uh, it, it's, it's work, you know. <laughs> well, this comes out before 68, which I yeah, think it does is come an, an interesting, yeah. Yeah, there's an yeah. interesting prelude to that in how easily this very rich person who has a very exploitative domineering dynamic with most of the people that he meets, how easily he gets along with hippies. And we see this in a lot of 60s stuff. We see a lot of people that you wouldn't expect easily getting along with hippies. Sometimes in Mad Men, Don Draper easily gets along with hippies. And in uh, Richard Nixon is sometimes depicted as going in uh, the Oliver Stone film. He goes out and hangs out with the hippies a little bit. And even the people that you think of as fiercely anti-hippie can easily hang out with the hippies because there isn't really any content to the hippie rebellion. In many ways, it's an accelerationist version of the thing that is already there. And so to indulge in hanging out with the hippies is to indulge in the future of the thing that you currently practice. I mean, I guess why I called the, the, the people playing the tennis game hipsters is that they have this sort of, you know, the, the bohemian kind of like, so random and like, we're doing play, which is connected to the child, which is connected to truth or whatever. I don't know. More, they're more connected to reality as it is or whatever, sense certain stuff. I don't know. But um, is that they're, they're all wearing very upper middle class clothes on behind them, the white makeup. You know, they're wearing kind of like nice duffel coats and this and the other. So they're very, they would be upper middle class British people probably. In, uh in Roger Ebert's review, he suggests that they're university students doing rag week. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It, the film yes, opens no, I think, I, think that's, I think that's correct, because in the opening scene, they ask him for money. He sees them originally in the first scene, and that's a kind of rag week thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I think they are supposed to be students in that sense, in that 60s sense, definitely. Um. Yeah, and it was it was to be a university student in the UK in the 60s was the first time for many, many people, even middle class people. And it was but it was still a very, very small number of people who got to go to university at that point. It, and it was, yeah, it, it did create this cultured elite class in a way or, you know, this bourgeois bohemian class um, for sure. And I, I mean, I totally agree, Benjamin, with the whole hippie compatibility you know that the you know and then this is why we have silicon valley i mean this is why we're like our overlords are men who walk around as if they've just got up in from their dorm wearing like a t-shirt and a baseball hat and these are like the people who are like billionaires um and you know in a way control our media environment mm -hmm. uh but this is this is what, like, you know, why Freud needs to be read, you know, Marx needs to be read with Freud, like proper Freud, not pop psychology fake shit that, you know, again, is, is used by these or whatever. But, you know, there's no, there's no beyond of the quote unquote system, you know, because it's not a system, it's a, it's a libidinal nexus. I still think there's room for critique, though. 
and I think this film is an example of critique and differs from the both of the things that it is critiquing in its content. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we accept that it's a critique of this kind of diffuse desire and the, you know, the kind of pointlessness of this. I mean, you know, there are there are really only two options, one of which is Helen's, I think, like not giving up on desire, at least, or, you know, trying to pay attention to it or understand it. And the other would be kind of in a way trying to eliminate it, which would be a kind of a Buddhist position, you know, a kind of how to, uh, I don't know how to, to, which would actually be in a way, the acceptance of the meaninglessness of things, right? Like the, like Helen, you, you seem to put it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea that actually to accept the reality of our pointless, meaningless existence, you know, on this planet moving around and this fragment of flesh that is finite and unimportant, that actually we, desire is actually in a way, it keeps us here. Exactly. <laughs> it keeps yeah, us, sure. it keeps us like engaged in the world. And, and because if we accepted that truth, like in a profound sense, what what could we do with that? I mean, it's it's not necessarily depressive. It's not necessarily suicidal, but it is a kind of withdrawing. You certainly you know? wouldn't have a reason to reproduce if you went that route. No, you know, and there may, there may there may be good arguments for that too. You know, I mean, I I do think that philosophers don't have children for a reason. <laughs> like honestly, <laughs> they think about it too much, and then they can't. You know, you can't think about it too much. Some things you can't think about too much, otherwise you don't do them. I mean, the thing is, because, you know, we have an unconscious, which for Freud is not anything to do with depth or, you know, a, a belowness that is repressed. And then we have it, it's, it's on the surface. The unconscious is like a split within reality. And that split, split does endow us with this tendency to, to, to enter into illusion. And I think the thing is, it's like almost getting to this point of instead of um, the illusion being a religious illusion where we sell off the present in favor of the future, I, we, we don't understand desire. We have this tendency and we sell our desire off on behalf of another desire, which is the desire of capital. There is a way to come to terms with it, but you, you, know, you can't, you can't, you're never going to get beyond it. But you can understand it in a way and you can channel it in a way. You know, for instance, I was I always get sort of slightly depressed at the end of the year and I realized I was kind of realizing why. And I kind of realized like I've done two years of psychoanalysis. So I think I'm sort of like maybe gonna stop. But I think I've kind of like understood something about myself which you think is a, is wrong, is a symptom, and you actually realize it's you, all you are. And um I did enter in sort of like a Jungian, maybe like, I guess, pseudo, whatever you call it, phase, which is a way to try to manage the trauma of that when you are um, separated from your desire in such a way, which happens to, I think a lot of people, people who are able to repress more than others can tolerate it more than others. And there's probably a level of intolerance in us and that we don't have mainstream jobs. <laughs> like, you know, so maybe we are potentially, yeah, I don't know. There's nothing, nobody's better or worse. It just is the way it is. Um, but I, I think the thing is with with the sort of Buddhisty kind of stuff, and even the existentialist. Like, it's interesting. And um, Peter was saying yesterday that he thinks that we're like we we're entering into an era where we need existentialism and again. And it's an interesting that existentialism emerged around um, sort of fascism, World War Two, and post war slightly. But I think we are in a similar situation. There is a sort of question of existentialism, but I don't think existentialism 
in the sort of um, early 20th century sense goes quite far enough in that it doesn't understand the endowment of desire that we can do you know nothing about and obviously you have like Sartre's stuff about like the waiter which I think is a little bit like well you know he's doing his job well and he doesn't really have a choice about the job but um the point being though that like with the Buddhism thing in a way you can see how the Buddhism fake Buddhism enters into this sort of western eastern um Silicon Valley thing where you are confronted with the shitness of reality through I don't know the development of scientific discourse or whatever but that's too much and you have to like have an addendum which is a silly kind of religious addendum which is the oneness which is spirituality which is meditating so that you can be a better working subject you know a capitalist subject which is you know that there is some kind of utopia in the nothing but so you have to sort of add on this stupid supplement which is really 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 dangerous actually i think well I think the reason that I have such a tendency with this to get on my on my judgment box <laughs> is Anglo-American empiricism bothers me. And it bothers me because it doesn't take seriously where that kind of empiricism goes. If you take empiricism seriously, then nothing matters. Nothing has any meaning. And so why would you bother seeking all of these pleasures? The outcome of straight empiricism is something like the Buddhist perspective. And so my impulse is if you're going to be straight empiricist, what are you doing playing around with all this crap? And then if you're not going to be straight empiricist, if you're going to say that you ought to be pursuing some kind of, of meaning or some notion of the good or whatever, uh, you know, then then let's articulate that. But I get very frustrated by a kind of derpy hedonism, which is a kind of inauthentic empiricism, empiricism that has not acknowledged the, where it goes. Counterpoint. Um, it just occurred to me, th- listening to what you're saying, and I don't I don't necessarily disagree, but <clears throat> there is another t- way of thinking, I suppose, that would inc- incorporate William Blake <laughs> and a kind of Gnostic, some of the Gnostic stuff, which is to do with the fact, and we talked about this before, that actually <clears throat> having an experience of something is not something you can simply know about, but something you have to do, right? And it may, or Bataille would say, say something like this in a way too, like it's someone saying it's not a good idea to take drugs or to sleep around or to stay up for five days in a row or to go mad or whatever. It's like, yes, all of that's true. <laughs> but it may be the case that there are certain kinds of experiences that you have in the doing of things, however, you know, em- empiricist, that do actually point to some other forms of knowledge, right? So that, that so that you, in the doing of them, you do learn something that you couldn't otherwise learn by simply reading about it or by someone telling you about it or whatever. And uh, for better or worse, I suppose. And you wouldn't necessarily know what those things were. In fact, you definitely wouldn't know what those things were unless you'd experienced them. Um, and I wonder about this kind of, you know, sort of mor- moralistic, quite practically correct, no doubt, critique of certain forms of behaviour as if we always already know what the outcome of them 
is and it's always negative or something like this. Um, and I don't I don't think that's that can quite be right, at least for some people. And they and maybe then I'm doing a defense of poets and artists again in a well. I think watching this film is an empirical experience that teaches you something. And it teaches you that you don't need to spend years of your life uh, doing things that don't really go anywhere, that don't involve benefiting other people, uh, that don't contribute to any kind of collective project. And I think that purely self-indulgent behavior that doesn't contribute to anything collective, that's something that we should be able to tell, isn't going to be a good way to live without having to spend years of our life doing those things. Now, that's not to say that the behaviors that we might associate with a self-indulgent life could not be instructive if they're done in some kind of setting where there are meaningful connections that are made among people. If at these parties, people were having conversations where they were talking about interesting things, if you know people were sharing some of the things that they were struggling with and the drugs and the alcohol helped them loosen up and help them talk to each other, or the music was something they were connecting over or bonding over, there are all sorts of ways to integrate physical pleasure into, into trying to find good ways of living. I'm, and I'm not someone who's anti-pleasure, but what I am against is pleasure purely for its own sake and with no other connections to people, community, values. And this film depicts purposefully and intentionally not just hedonistic behavior, but hedonistic behavior, which has no other further purposes. And almost every other time we see a party in a movie there's something that's going on there that matters. And here we see parties that are purposefully designed to have none of that, to have no redeeming features or qualities, just partying for its own sake. I think the thing is, though, OK, to be very Bataillon about it, parties can be very creative and useful. Wasteful things can be useful. I mean, we have like. Capitalism destroys itself by being too, quote unquote, too, too utilitarian, too productive. But this isn't that kind of useful. I'm talking about a usefulness that involves human connection, a yes, usefulness yes. that involves substantive value, a usefulness, not market value. I think I, the thing is, though, but, but the point being is like, you know, the logic of reality operates. And I think the thing is that acknowledged desire is very useful. We are endowed with desire replacement objects when we are very, very young and it, it, it is completely contingent, but they can be very, very useful. Some people, my nephew loves cleaning. <laughs> he loves tidying up, for instance. You know, like desire, repressed desire in favor of um, self-sacrifice on behalf of the ideology of promise for a system that has to be destructive to to produce surplus value is not useful, is alienating and is destructive. And then we have a party in response to this that's sort of like, fuck everything, fuck everything. But I think acknowledged desire through the experience of understanding that we are speaking subjects only because we are born into a language which is a signifying chain that connects everybody is useful, is very, very useful and not very damaging because we can we can't get beyond a return of the repressed, but you know we can mitigate. I think the binary of either you're servicing the market or you've got to be in the individual. 
I think that's the the fundamental issue with the 60s is mm-hmm. anything that is community oriented is associated with servicing capital or servicing the system or servicing the man. And so then the only alternative that's left to you is a kind of individualistic ennui driven uselessness. Yeah, I, but that's definitely, yeah. Go, go for just, it. No, well, just, on, you know, to, to slightly more of my artist point, I mean, in a way like the artist or whatever in the Bataillon sense, and I agree with Helen's synopsis of Bataille in this way, it's like, you know, that, the, there are different kinds of excess, you know, one of which is our own existence in the first place, another mm-hmm. which is the sun, which is just like insane. Uh, and there's always too much, right? And then, of course, there's a utilitarian destruction, um, uh, you know, of capitalism, but there's also kind of forms of excess that go beyond that. And I think that the poet or the philosopher or whoever, the, the person who, the artist, it is in a way, yes, potentially individualistic and as depicted in this film in the 60s and definitely there is that individualistic strain but they are also the one who can go somewhere to tell everyone else what is what it's like so in a way they they're also the ones that are capable of summarizing or describing or explaining poetically things in a universal way for everyone otherwise people wouldn't like poetry or whatever like it wouldn't correspond to anything in their in their own souls so i i sort of think that there is an excessive you know, dimension to the behaviour potentially of people who are prepared, if you like, to to go far down a conceptual or existential path um, that then is actually beneficial, if you like, to others. I mean, not only, not as a warning, although you could see it like that, but also as a kind of, you know, to tell truths and to to express things that, that are collective and and human and universal. Somehow. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I'm not anti-poetry or anti-artists, uh, but I think that real artists and poets with real talent in the real world don't go to concerts and just sit there stone-faced. Yeah, 100%. Right? And they, they, don't, they don't do the kinds of things that we see but, in this film. If they go to a concert, they get excited about the lyrics or about the feelings of it, and they talk to each other about it, and they interact with each other, and, and things come out of those interactions. And here we've got it stripped down, where none of the other things that we associate with art are there except the pure instrumentality of it. But, but to talk that's about- That's what's so dystopian about this film. To That's why about, it's not the real London. It's it's a London that doesn't have any of the redeeming features. To talk about two points, I think your first point in relation to this and your last point. So, so first of all, I mean, this is not the reality of any artist I have ever known. Obviously, we live in a different epoch. I don't know what, what it was like to be an artist in the 60s. But, you know, potentially we're, we're pointing to a, um, a part of society that is the offspring of a certain class at a certain time who can do what, you know, whatever the fuck they want and drive a Rolls Royce, you know, like the material conditions, maybe let's say, I don't know if this is a real depiction or not, but, you know, in, in a world that we live in now, this is certainly not the reality of artists at all. Um, but also, so in terms of, I think what you were saying, I can't remember the terms you used, but, but it made me think of the, the, you know, so, so, so this, this critique of, you know, structure and, 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 and civil society and engaging on behalf of the other as somehow capitalistic is precisely the misguided, capitalistic, pro-capitalistic, non-critique, but expansive of the market of 60s, late 60s discourse, which is to misrecognize capitalism because of an, a misunderstanding of human subjectivity, taking it at its word and believing that, that, um, the, the repressiveness is in the thing that is actually not repressive, which is 
some kind of collectivity, some kind of um, self-restraint because you acknowledge the existence of the other. And instead we get a real repression, which comes from a, a fake promise that there is a beyond in in getting what you want, but that getting what you want is precisely you have to give up your desire to 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 engage in whatever like fake promise the next thing is. So we have things like oh, it's patriarchy, and it's you know it's the same thing you know that that jouir sans entrave enjoy without without. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. This is exactly the placards of success. So this is one that I've said this all the time. This is jouir sans entrave, like uh, enjoy without borders, without boundaries, as if boundaries are the problem. It's like well, no. Boundaries generate desire. Without any boundaries, you just get complete the, what, what, what's in this film. And potentially maybe these artists are living at the hands of, you know, at, at the expense of someone else's money. And they don't have any sense of anything. Um, but but there's no, there's no, but, but this is the point, because to really engage in your desire is to acknowledge the limitations around your desire that you often set up for yourself unconsciously, especially if you don't have them materially, which is why you can still get what you want, quote unquote, in community and acknowledging other people's desires, because what you really want is to not get what you want, but to revolve around the pursuit of getting what you want. Getting what you want is completely devastating. <laughs> um, I also want to mount a slight defence of, of individualism, actually, in the 60s, and in the sense that it does kind of make sense the part of the backlash against the first part of the, the 20th century with all of its collectivism, whether in the Soviet model or, you know, the mass the politics of the, the left and the right, not to mention nationalism and armies and everything that characterised a certain form of enforced belonging um, across Europe um, was, was mounted at the national or group or collective level, you know. And, and so in a way, the individual... Then whether you're Solzhenitsyn or, or someone else, anyone else, I don't know, Samyatin or Orwell, um, <laughs> sorry, um, does start to seem like a form of, of resistance against those forms of collectivism, right? Which is not to say, of course, that the individual therefore is, is somehow uh, out of relation and should just behave in a selfish way, even though that's where this goes, right? And I, I agree that that's the, the apex of the, the 60s hippie individualism. But it, you can sort of see why there was a temptation for this existentialist, individualistic, one against all, you know, what about my mind? What about my life? What about my experience? You know, as opposed to it being slotted into what was actually terrifying totalitarian politics. Yeah, that was the benign intention. And the trouble is that we haven't been able to find a way in between an alienating totalitarian schema and a kind of hyper-individualistic reaction to that. And that constant swinging between extremely alienating totalitarian schemas and hyper-individualistic, hyper-heroic, uh, glorifying the, the Caesar figure stuff. Uh, and they often kind of bleed together because the individual Caesar figure who transcends the broken totalitarian machine becomes the one who institutes the new phase of the totalitarian machine. Uh, this, this swinging between the glorification of the individual and glorification of the totality is a swing in which both sides play a role in pushing 
And I think that's the thing that we've really been stuck in for a very long time now. I think Tocqueville talks about it in France and ancient regime and the revolution. We, we just can't seem to get out of it. But this is this is where an understanding of subjectivity does come in, because you're, you're right. You know, the anti is just sustaining the same dialectic. But there is there is an um, I don't even know the words outside, but there is a diff, there is a different um, logic which points to something that is not that binary. Thanks, Freud. Just saying. Well, different logic that points to something that is not that binary. Is it Buddhism or is it a different relationship to It's a different understanding energy? of subjectivity. It's an acknowledgement of the material reality of subjectivity. I personally think... Well, I think the tendency is for people to think that it's Buddhism that way to stuff. get into no. a kind of a kind of negating mode. And that's no that's negation. part of what I think. Uh, that's why there needs to be something, something on top of the empiricism. Otherwise, it just tends to go to that. No, but this is the thing, though, because empiricism is not empirical enough. That's the whole point it generates, right? It generates. Because to not understand the nature of our, and this is where, this is like, this is Hegel, I guess, but like, it's the same as Freud and it's the same as Marx, but it, uh, I mean, and the, yeah, we can argue why we haven't, we haven't got, got to, why Marx didn't really solve anything. Um, although it's, I think it's the best logic we've ever had. <laughs> um, but, and, and I know this is why loads of people are, turning to bringing Freud with Marx and also understand like doing sort of a more theological analysis of the market. But I think it, like em empiricism is not empirical because it doesn't take into consideration contradiction, but the contradiction is proved. The existence of contradiction is proved by the degeneration of empiricism into nihilism. It falls back on it. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> As in like, well, if we say, for instance, that empiricism leads to but so, so I don't know because I don't even. This is like a massive topic. So maybe we should save it, it is for the a big B side. This All is a right. Topic. So Have we'll we done an hour? Up. Yeah, we're worried about an hour. Okay. So we'll wrap up the A side for today. We hope that you'll join us on the B side for the Patreon listeners. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye.